Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey everyone, welcome to the Heart of High podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles. This podcast focuses on the goal of providing unique and culturally sensitive perspectives on physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and wellness. Our goal is to provide you with the best millennial and Gen Z health news you can use. If you like this podcast, follow us on Instagram at HWHThePodcast and give us a rating of five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Now, without further delay, let's get started. Did you know that February 4th is World Cancer Day? Well, it is. And if you're living in this world, chances are that you or someone you know has dealt with cancer. Cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States, only behind heart disease. And in 2020, about 1.8 million new cases of the disease were diagnosed. We have to beat cancer, but it starts with advocacy. And who better to be an advocate than cancer survivors, their family, and the doctors who help treat them? Yesterday, my colleagues and I at the Chan School of Public Health had the wonderful opportunity to host a great conversation with some real-life superheroes. Our talk featured four-time Olympian and breast cancer survivor Shantae Lowe, basketball Hall of Famer and humanitarian Dikembe Mutombo, and cancer survivor and coach of the Washington football team, Ron Rivera. This live event was moderated by my colleague and friend, Fox Sports senior correspondent, Pam Oliver. Enjoy. I am so delighted to be a part of this conversation. Joining us today, Shante Lowe. Shante is an Olympic medalist in the high jump who just received the 2021 NCAA Inspiration Award for her triumph over breast cancer. Dikembe Mutombo, who played 18 successful NBA seasons and is a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame. Since retiring from the sport, Dikembe has devoted his life to healthcare philanthropy, building a hospital in his homeland of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, a hospital that's treated over a half million people. Ron Rivera, who just finished his 24th season in the NFL and his first as head coach of the Washington football team, it was a challenging year for Ron as he underwent cancer treatments during the NFL season while coaching. Now, we'll talk to everyone in a minute, but before we start, for all of you watching, we invite you to submit your questions via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harvard Public Health. Shante, let's start with you. You are an Olympic medalist in amazing shape, everything in front of you, a great life, married with three beautiful children. Then at the age of 34, everything changed. Tell us about that life-changing moment. Thank you for that introduction, Pam. Yeah, so I was doing self-breast exams because I had a friend who was young, athletic, and was diagnosed with stage zero cancer. So I was doing breast exams myself. And I was doing them so frequently that I knew the week that I felt a rice-sized lump um, in my left breast. And immediately, I went and sought um, medical attention. It wasn't there the week before. And I knew that it was something that I should have checked. But you as a woman, especially a woman of color, and what did you find? The healthcare system can all be very dismissive in a lot of ways. What was your personal experience? 
It was very difficult to even get in for an appointment for a mammogram and ultrasound, but ultimately I was able to get in and just looking at me and, and maybe it's my, you know, the fact that I was fit or whatever, the doctor decided to tell me, even looking at the ultrasound and the mammogram, that it was just a normal lymph node and not to come back for six years. So don't worry about it. Come back for six years and just go be about your business. And you trusted the information, but at some point that changed. What made you question your doctor's diagnosis? I just start, I continue to fill it. My kids would see me filling it, you know, and I realized that it was something that was on my mind. But as I felt it, I noticed that it was changing and it was changing rapidly and I could feel it getting bigger and stiffer and, and it just started to make me concerned. And at that point, I realized I needed a second opinion. So you trusted yourself and you trusted your gut. And that's the lesson really from Shantae's story is to trust your gut. If you feel that something is not right, stop at nothing to get to the bottom of it. Early detection, as we've heard already, can make the difference between a successful outcome and a catastrophic one. Now mm -hmm. let us introduce Dr. Katrina Armstrong, Chief of Medicine at Mass General Hospital. Her research has led to better understandings of cancer disparities. Let's look at some of the stats that have disparities between black and white care. Really pay attention to this graphic. Black women are 40% more likely to die of cancer than white women and they are twice as likely to die if they take, if they are over rather 50 years of age. African-American women have a 7% lower risk of cancer diagnosis than white women, but a 13% higher risk of cancer death. African-Americans have the highest death rate and the shortest survival of any racial ethnic group for most cancers. That is disturbing, Dr. Armstrong. How common is Shante's story, especially in the Black community? So Pam, those numbers continue to break my heart. We've been working on them for so long and they are so heartbreaking. So I will say, you know, almost a quarter of breast cancers in Black women are diagnosed before 50. So just think of that, a quarter of those cancers. That's almost twice the proportion as in white women. And so I will say it's also unfortunate for black women that those cancers are more likely to be the aggressive type that Ms. Lowe had. And although breast cancer is still rare before age 50, I could not agree more with what you said. We should take every lump seriously. Everything should be done to make sure that that lump is not cancer and everybody should be focusing on that. When should you start um breast cancer mammograms. When should that begin for you? As we saw and heard, Shante was just in her early 30s and this hit her. So when should this process really start with mammograms and which is a part of early detection? So it's such a great point, Pam. And I will say that we now recommend that everybody individualize that decision at an early stage. And so for people who have risk factors or family history, we are starting mammograms earlier and earlier. But for everyone, we recommend they start by 50. But if anybody has a symptom or a risk factor, we are starting those an earlier. I wanna make one point, which is that sometimes mammograms miss things. So if you have a lump, 
with or without a mammogram, that is a sign that those doctors need to take it seriously until we know you are cancer free. Amazing point. And also, um, obviously, the system in this country does not work for everyone. I think we'll all agree on that. So how do we convince people to have faith in a system that understandably, they might not even trust, which is critical? So it's such an important point. And I think you make the key issue is that we, I, all of us in healthcare have to make that system trustworthy. And to do that, we've got to root out issues of racism and discrimination. We've actually done a study that shows so much of that distrust just comes from peaceful, from prior personal experiences of being discriminated against in the system. So that is job number one is to make the system trustworthy. But we also need to change who's in the system, hiring people of color, building a clinical workforce of color that matches the patients who we serve, because we know that improves communication and finally, I'll say engaging with communities of color to listen and improve our access and messaging to understand how we can do better is central to what we're going to head to, to make this system trustworthy for all. You may agree on this. The important takeaway here is that we should seek out institutions like Mass General and many others that are committed to achieving health equity, partnering with diverse local communities to deliver high quality care. Dikembe, as we turn to you, cancer is one of the leading causes of death among women in Africa. Here are some shocking statistics. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, cancer kills more people than tuberculosis, AIDS, and malaria combined. According to World Health Organization, by 2030, cervical cancer will kill almost a half million women annually worldwide, most of them in sub-Saharan Africa. Cervical cancer accounts for 22% of all female count of cancer, excuse me. Dikembe, tell us a little bit about the lack of access that you see in your home country. What is the situation that concerns you most? Um, thank you, Ben. The situation in Africa is very critical right now. It's, um, it's very difficult even to explain. I don't know where to start. Um, that's the reason why 25 years ago, my wife and I um, decided that it was time for us to build the hospital in Congo. Um, after seeing so much mortality, especially on women, I decided that uh, to build the $29 million hospital that I was opened in 2007. Since the hospital opened, we thought maybe we would go and only see people dying from malaria, tuberculosis, and all the diseases, they call it the disease of the poor. But after 10 years, we realized that it was much deeper than that. More women was dying in silence what we call silence killing. And because it was cancer, it was a taboo. It was very difficult for those women to come out in a society saying that uh, I'm feeling something here on my chest. Let me tell you, he cannot even explain it that to his wife, to her husband, because he know that her husband will live it, hmm. will go away, go find another wife. And uh, not many people would, would, so they will die in a silence that's been quiet letting that carry them away all the way to their, their, their deathbed. And um, 
Five years ago, we launched the cancer program in the Congo uh, to screen especially women with cervical cancer and breast cancer. As I'm talking to you today, we have already screened more than 30-some thousand women are being treated with cervical cancer and many more, a couple more thousand have been treated with breast cancer. I'm very happy with the work we are doing, but that work needs to be expanded. Right now, it's very limited. Only change you can get it only to Mutombo Hospital or University Hospital. But this thing about cancer, it needs to be funded. They need to be more funding they putting in Africa to treat cancer. Otherwise, we will continue to see more women dying in a high rate than we haven't seen. Who is missing the message? Everything you said has me riveted. I'm on the edge of my seat as I listen to you, and it's it's so maddening and it's so sad. So who needs to hear your message and what it is you want to accomplish with these women in Africa? I think uh, we need more people with voice. We need more people to become more advocates to speak about cancer. The cancer problem is not just here in America with African-American community. I think uh, the problem with cancer when it comes to breast cancer, cervical cancer, and other cancer, prostate cancer, is affecting a lot of people or minority because those people are the population that don't have enough access to the good healthcare. Not just because they don't have money, the problem is the healthcare system is sometimes it's located too far away from where those people are living. In Congo, sometimes people have to travel for days to get to the Mutombo hospital. Some of them have to travel for a week by boat to just to get to the hospital. Can you imagine if you're in a critical condition and getting on a boat in the middle of the Congo River to get in the capital city of Kinshasa? Who knows what might happen to you in the middle of the night? Who knows that you're going to make it? And then we need to speak more about it. We need more activists. And I'm so happy I chose this one to go and speak about women who are suffering up there in this world. Your foundation built the hospital that you mentioned in your late mother's name. You must be very, very proud of that. So very how proud. Do you serve um, those who badly need it, these women that show up, if you've had personal interactions with them, what are they saying to you directly? Oh, God. So many of them clients, they look at me and they always wonder, where are you coming from? That's the question that many of them always ask me. What did your mom told you? And uh, only thing my, I always take in, I always like to share with the people that the good advice that I've learned from my parents is just going trying to serve your community and trying to make a difference and God will bless you more. And uh, I took that right uh, to serve my community, to serve my people, to serve those who need and uh, I think that what uh, God put us in this planet, uh, if we can make a difference, let go and make a difference to make the world a better place for the next generation. Mm. Takimbe, obviously you're just one man, but the takeaway here is that you can accomplish a lot as an individual, but there is systemic healthcare problems throughout Africa that 
in our lifetime, we hope to see that improve. Let's turn to Meg O'Brien, Vice President of Global Cancer Treatment at the American Cancer Society. Meg, you led a portfolio of projects throughout Africa focused on expanding access to cancer treatment, but let's talk about prevention. What can we do to increase education programs and make access to healthcare more widely available, which is obviously critical? Well, we need to work with communities and local organizations uh, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa to educate people about the signs and symptoms of cancer so they know when to seek care. Um, another important thing for us is to address the fear of cancer. There is a fatalism and a fear of the diagnosis that's often a factor in people delaying screening or care. And then just, just uh, Shantae's story demonstrates it's not enough to focus on the patients. We also need to educate healthcare providers to ensure that they know when and how to refer patients for further investigation so we can reduce delays in starting treatment. And when we talk about effective prevention, we need to talk about HPV vaccination to prevent cervical cancer. Now, these are all important parts of our strategies moving ahead. What do you see in terms of the future of cancer screenings in Africa, say within the next 10 years, what, what's your hope? Well, uh, in the next 10 years, the World Health Organization is estimating that more than 8 million people in Sub-Saharan Africa will die of cancer. Uh, that's simply unacceptable. Uh, African governments, they see this problem and they're investing heavily. Uh, they're standing up departments to address it in their health ministries and building cancer centers to start uh, improving access to care. So what I think we'll see over the next 10 years is a, a slow expansion of care, including screening um, and prevention activities. I think we'll see an initial focus on early detection. So we'll try to get people diagnosed earlier. Um, that gives us a much better chance to treat their cancers and get better outcomes. And then in terms of screening, I think a lot of what we're gonna see in the near future is a focus on cervical cancer screening. Um, cervical cancer is a number one cause of cancer death in Sub-Saharan Africa. And this is an area where we're starting to see the development of some new, less expensive, and more practical tools for screening. So I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll see a lot more attention and funding in this area in the next 10 years. Why cervical cancer, Meg? Well, cervical cancer has an infectious cause. It's the human papillomavirus. And, um, you know, we don't see it as much in the U.S. because we have widespread access to screening and, and early treatment through pap smears and things like that. That's part of our routine care. Um, that's not the case in Sub-Saharan Africa. So we're still, you know, starting from behind, trying to ramp up screening and early treatment. And then hopefully, you know, we can meet it with vaccination so we can prevent these cancers in the first place. Thank you for that, Meg. We appreciate that. As for the future of cancer screening in this country, this next guest has a vision for making it accessible to all. Coach Ron Rivera my dear friend and one of my favorite people of the Washington football team. Congratulations on a successful first season for you. It was a challenging one for you because you were fighting the battle of your life. Please tell us more about the type of cancer that you had and its treatment. And we're happy to say you've been determined to be cancer-free. What's interesting was, was Meg mentioned this, uh, the HPV virus. My cancer was viral. It was a result of the HPV virus. And back in the day growing up, we didn't have that vaccination. And apparently somehow that's, that's something I contracted growing up and it sits dormant in your system and, and, and at any time you can come alive. And apparently mine did last summer. 
I thought I had a, uh, a strep throat or something. I went and saw the doctor. They gave me some antibiotics. Went on vacation just before we started training camp. And when I came back, I had a lump on the side of my neck that was still there. It had gotten inflamed when I, when I first started um, um, feeling the sore throat and it remained. So I went and saw my doctor, um, our team doctor, Tony Castellaro. We talked about it. He said, let's keep an eye on it. Um, come see me next week. I came back, he examined me and said, you know, I really think we need to get an exam done. Uh, we need to get a scan. Uh, we went and got a scan um, and then we did a biopsy right afterwards and um, it came back that it was positive. Um, and then they tested to see what, whether it was viral or not. They found that it was viral. And the doctor said, because we found it early, uh, because of early detection, uh, it is highly treatable and highly curable. And so we went, we went into action. Um, and what's kind of motivate, motivated me to want to speak out about this is because the realization that because of my situation, because of who I am, because of the insurance that we have, um, we were able to detect this early, get this taken care of early, get my treatment started early, and win. And I can only imagine if, if, if you didn't have these resources that I did, that, you know, that somebody else would have been able to detect this early and get this taken care of. And I just feel right now the realization that we've got to make this healthcare uh, accessible. Quality healthcare has to be accessible to everybody, uh, not just the, the fortunate few that, that have good health insurance. You've said that every step of the way, um, spending time with you um, as you went through this, um, that it's got to be available for everybody. Just how lucky you must feel to have the type of insurance as you have, to have the access to these amazing doctors. But there are plenty of people who do not. So why was that a mission for you? Why were you on this quest to at least create attention surrounding this troubling issue? Um, about four years ago, I had an aunt who passed away of a heart situation. And we tried to help her out with it. When, when my mother's cardiologist had told my mom, hey, why don't you bring her and let me take a look at her? And so they brought her records to the doctor. They, you know, she had an exam by the doctor. And basically the doctor told her, you know, your situation with your heart was something that should have been taken care of 25 years ago. And what had happened was, because she didn't have the right kind of health insurance, she didn't get the kind of treatment she needed. She basically got you know, something that would you know, help it right now, but nothing that could cure it. And the doctor basically said that if she had had the right insurance, you know, she'd be fine right now. And, and that really shook us up. It shook me up. And, and, and I've always had that in the back of my mind. And then all of a sudden, as I went through what I did, I kept thinking to myself, thank goodness, you know, this is the type of insurance I have because I, I, I'm not sure what would have happened. Before we move on to Tim, Shante, there's a question that came across for you. How did you find the strength to train during chemo? And what is your advice um, for cancer survivors on starting and sustaining exercise during and after treatment? Yeah, for me, I was at the point where I was thinking I was going to retire. I wasn't really sure if I was going to go on or not. I would work out here and there to give myself striking distance if I wanted to compete in the Tokyo 2020 Games. When I got the diagnosis and I started doing the research and learning about the one in eight women in America being diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime, the fact that African-Americans were getting this very aggressive triple negative breast cancer, which I had, I was floored. 
And it was the fact that I didn't pay attention to it. Even though I saw on my timeline, I had shared it to Facebook a few years before. And I, it hit me that other people aren't seeing this. So I decided that not only training for myself, it's not about medals. It's about going to the Olympics, the biggest stage on the world, getting in front of those microphones and saying, I did this because you need to know your risk. And that's that's my gold medal. I, I don't, and I, I hate to say it, like, I mean, I care, but I don't care about any other gold medal. I want women to know. And I had to do it. And so my advice is that, when you're going through treatment, it's not something you want to go through, but being able to sweat, being able to have blood circulation, being able to lift your energy is something that comes through exercise. It reduces neuropathy, which is a very you know, um, debilitating side effect of, of chemotherapy drugs. And um, I had to do it because I want other women or people or men, because men get breast cancer too, to know that it's possible to get through it and you can fight every single day. Well, just imagine this. In 2019, nearly 26 million Americans were uninsured at some point. And we know the uninsured individuals in this country are substantially more likely to be diagnosed with cancer at a later stage when treatment is often more intensive, costlier, and less successful. Tim Rebick is the director of the Zoo Family Center for Global Cancer Prevention here at Harvard. And Tim, we are years, if not decades away from universal health care, but how do we bring cutting edge prevention and treatments to the uninsured right now? Well, so your question, uh, Pam, is at the heart of what we need to be thinking about in order to get access to known uh, preventive strategies, treatment strategies to people. Uh, so you're right that insurance is really important, uh, but I think it's also important for us to think about, given the timeline we have before there is universal coverage for all people in insurance, that um, the reasons people don't have access are really multifactorial. There are many things going on. Um, so we have data now that suggests that people on Medicaid, public insurance, sometimes have worse outcomes than those people that have no insurance at all. Uh, and what that may tell us is that it's the most vulnerable in our society who may be covered by Medicaid, but they are also facing other problems like food or housing insecurity, or they have other access limitations like being able to take time off work or get childcare. So your point about insurance is absolutely correct and we need to work to get universal coverage for all people. But in the interim, it's also possible for us to think about and understand why people don't get screened or treated uh, and to think about addressing some of those problems which De definitely depend on insurance, but may depend on other social uh, healthcare setting situations that we can address in a different and more holistic way and set up the systems that are needed uh, to get people who have access regardless of their insurance status. Um, questions are coming in fast and furious and many consumers of health news feel a sort of whiplash when it comes to cancer prevention news. It seems like every day there's some new superfood that prevents cancer or some chemical that causes it. And then the next day the recommendations change again. How can non-scientists type people without medical training make sense of the apparently conflicting headlines? Uh, so, you know, this is a, a question that we've been seeing in a different context over the past year with COVID. 
it's very difficult for people uh, to understand the rapidly changing uh, environment of scientific knowledge, recommendations, and inherently this is a good thing. The fact that we're seeing changes or, or different um, uh, information coming out means we're making progress, we're learning things. Uh, our knowledge of uh, what's important is evolving. And that's a good thing, but it's confusing to people, as you say. And I think, as we've seen with COVID, it's very hard for people to catch up and keep up on rapidly changing things. But I think the key issue is listen to the people who know better. Listen to Dr. Fauci, listen to the American Cancer Society, listen to the people that have knowledge in this area, have thought about it, and use that knowledge to make your own personal decisions. Uh, and there is information out there that is really quite consistent if you go to reliable sources and you trust the people in the system who have uh, generated the data, have thought about this, and, and have a better idea about what's going on. Uh, there are sources out there we can trust. Ron, a question for you um, from the audience. How were you able to balance your workload with your treatments? I know it was very, very taxing. You had good days and bad. I did, but the one thing I had, Pam, was I was very fortunate. I had, I had a really good team. You know, first and foremost, my caregivers, my primary caregivers were my wife and daughter. And so they, they, were, they were tremendous and, and, you know, very fortunate that they were both there to help me. Um, but then the people around me, um, people understood what I was going through. We talked about, you know, what I was going to need and the help that they could have, uh, help uh, they could give me with the things that, that uh, my job required. Um, and so we set a schedule. And every morning I'd get up at five, I'd, I'd be at the hospital by seven, get my treatments. Uh, get back to the facility by 9.30. If I was back in time to do my meetings, I'd do my meetings. If not, one of my coaches was set and he would take care of that. Um, we even worked in my schedule where I had a nap, snacks, um, specific times for mini, for meals. So we, we set up a regimen and we stuck to it and, and we stayed on, on course to, to do the things that we needed to get done. Yeah, I recall that, and and um, we all marveled at your how you were able to maintain your energy and focus and determination, and, and you know the love of your players seemed to really play a big part in that as well. As we switch to access to screening again and the desire to be screened are especially challenging during COVID when many people are forgoing cancer screenings. Let's take a look at that. More than one-third of adults have not received recommended cancer screenings for associated age and risks during the pandemic. From March to July of 2020, screenings for breast, colon, lung, and prostate cancer dropped by 85%, 75%, 56%, and 74% respectively. Scary numbers. Dr. Armstrong, what do you think of the impact of COVID? What do you think that will be on the future with cancer diagnoses? Well, Pam, I think you just hit the nail on the head. We're heading into a national crisis with cancer screening and COVID. So what happens as we talked about is that when we people don't get screened, their cancers are diagnosed at a later stage. Paradoxically, we may actually have fewer cancers but they're going to be more advanced, diagnosed at a later stage, and more likely to lead to an early death for that person. So the crisis here is that we have got to figure out how to get cancer screening back on track so that we 
find the cancers earlier and we have fewer cancer deaths, which I just want to remember, that's the key here, is that we do not want to lose people to cancer. It seems daunting. It, you, you must just be on a, on a daily basis and, you know, know you're a medical doctor and all of that, but it's got to be daunting and just from a human standpoint. You know, I will say that it's been a tough year for the health um, profession, as we all know, but nothing has been more inspiring than the stories that I'm hearing here today. So if every person listening can stand up and take responsibility for their health, getting the screening, getting what they need, and then I think as Coach Rivera said, letting their family help them do that, I think that's the faith that keeps us all going and knowing that we're going to get screening back on track. We're here in the system to do it. We're ready. We're standing up to help you. And that's the partnership that this, I think, is all about. Uh, Tim, I just wanted to go back to you for a second. Um, this might be a philosophical question, but how have we gotten to a place where the system decides who lives and who dies? Not to be so dramatic, but that's a question that we yeah, well, Pam, you you know we're all aware that we live in a political, economic, healthcare system that's based on a history of discrimination and systemic racism and segregation that really does disadvantage some groups more than others, and that's very true. It's been painfully obvious for a number of years, and it's been painfully obvious during the COVID uh, year we've faced. But I think that one of the things that you're hearing from the really inspiring stories uh, today is that the system isn't the only thing that determines what our fate is. The system disadvantages some people, no question. We have to deal with that. We know that there are problems. We have some sense of how to fix those. We know we things that we need to do to invest and act on uh, fixing some of those problems. But we have families. We have communities. We have resources through the American Cancer Society, through community organizations. We have a lot of resources that are available to help us get around what the system has done uh, to some people. And so I think it's important for us to look towards some of these inspiring stories that we're hearing uh, and not get paralyzed by the system that we have limited control over, uh, but to work at uh, working through our communities, through our families, through our networks, uh, to get around some of this. And there's a lot there you're hearing from some of the people here that it is possible uh, to get uh, cancer early detection, to advocate for yourself and to advocate for your relatives to ensure that their outcomes are optimal. So. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go well, ahead. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to bring Dikembe back into the conversation. And, you know, you, you've talked about just the, the tragedies that you're you're dealing with in your home country um right here in the u.s though the you live in the united states um just your mission in terms of just awareness for cancer in general and what you're determined to accomplish to me and uh, my foundation our goal is uh, to improve the healthcare system to becoming a big advocate for the poor because um, I grew up very poor. I didn't have nothing. I came from a family of 10 children. Um, I don't remember the day my mom and dad uh, took me to a doctor visit. I don't know when did it happen. Uh, but as a father, as my wife and I, I know the schedule that our kids need to go to the doctor for the shot, for the physical, but when I was younger, those things didn't happen. 
But those are the things going on in Africa today. Most of the women don't have access because they're poor. Uh, they cannot afford the treatment. Even though the cervical cancer screening, which uh, the treatment costs almost like a 10 to $12 in Kinshasa. But uh, if your husband makes $75 to $80 and you got five kids, and you talk about you talk about the money that you guys need to have to pay rent, to eat, uh, to send the kids to school. When are you gonna give your wife at fifteen dollars and twenty dollars to say, okay, honey, this is the money here, go to a doctor? They cannot afford it. I'm so happy that the Dikemi Mutombo Foundation is providing those treatments for free. So every woman I'm talking about, more than 30 some thousand plus women who have received treatment, cancer screening and cancer treatment at the Mutombo Hospital, they have received it free and they have not paid no dime. And uh, I wanna do it, so I wanna thank all the American people who have contributed as much as they can to the Mutombo Foundation for me to provide those access to the women. Tim, uh, I skipped something that I, is very important. I wanted to go back to there um, was once a stigma attached to discussing cancers in areas of the body that people may not feel that are comfortable in discussing that stigma must have led to a reluctance to seek screening. Does that still have an impact today? Well, I think so, uh, on a couple of different levels. Uh, you know, as, as uh, Dikembe said, uh, from, uh, in, in many parts of the world, cancer is still a taboo subject, or it's culturally determined how one talks or thinks about cancer. Uh, and it's something that even today in the U.S., we don't have uh, really effective ways of talking about cancer with each other. Uh, and so, you know, in, in the 1970s, we had the War on Cancer and the National Cancer Act that allowed us to start having a national conversation about cancer. It, we didn't need necessarily to be afraid anymore to talk about uh, what cancer was because larger uh, groups began to speak about it. In 1974, First Lady Betty Ford was diagnosed with breast cancer and had a mastectomy, and she talked about it. Um, and that was very radical at the time. Now, it's very common for people to talk about their cancer experiences. So we made a lot of progress, and we are now able better in this country to talk about it. But I, absolutely, it has a, a lingering impact about how people feel comfortable about uh, talking about cancer, thinking about cancer, and also the fact that some of the cancer screening procedures that we have are embarrassing or they are difficult. And we need to be aware that those things are normal, things that we can all uh, experience and go through together in order to save lives. And so we need to be able to talk about it. We need to have education. Uh, and, you know, these stories we're hearing today in this uh, session, I think, really help get the word out that cancer is something that is a part of life and we should talk about it and we should deal with it with our families and with our communities and not be afraid uh, of the unknown. Ron, your brother Mickey passed away uh, some time ago from pancreatic cancer, and that's one of the more deadlier cancers that we all can deal with. So tell me about your quest in that area to just inform people about all kinds of forms of cancer because this hit your family personally. It did. You know, the, the, the problem with pancreatic cancer is there's really no test for it right now. Um, there are some things that they're working on trying to develop, but 
what happened with Mickey was because there really is no test, you, you, you get these occasional symptoms. And so the thing you have to understand about that is if your family has a history of it, you have to understand what the symptoms are. That way, if you get something that, that's similar, uh, you can go see your doctor. Uh, in Mickey's case, one of the issues he had was he had a really sore back that lasted almost three months before he went and saw his doctor. And eventually when they discovered it, Mickey was already in uh, stage three, um, trending towards stage four. So they, you know, they, they caught it relatively late. He had an opportunity to beat it, but it was just, it was, it was in a really bad position uh, on his pancreas and they really couldn't get to it. One thing that Mickey did do was he did outlive the diagnosis. But the big thing, more so anything else is, you know, you have to know what the symptoms are and, and you've got to be willing to go see the doctors uh, as soon as you, you feel anything that's odd. You know, one real quick thing that happened with my, with my diagnosis. Um, I, I heard from a lot of people and one of the people I heard from has sent me this note telling me that um, they had had the same form of cancer I did when they first felt a swelling in their lymph node, they did nothing about it for seven months. I did it within about a month of, of feeling it. And this person told me that because of it, his, his had, had moved on to, to, to almost stage three. He was cured, but he said because of it, the doctors told him that his, his, his treatment was gonna be just a little tougher than, than normal if he had come in a little bit sooner. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons why if you have early detection, you wanna make sure you get it taken care of. Absolutely, and, and know your body, and that brings you back to Shantae. Shantae, tell me why you're here today. Why, why are you still able to be a mom to your kids, um, to be able to compete with everything that you faced um, with your first non-diagnosis and then diagnosis? You know, when, because I went back and didn't listen to that initial diagnosis, um, I went back and I, I pretty much hit the cancer with a nuke. I got the double mastectomy. I got the chemotherapy. I did everything that I knew would statistically put me in the right position to be able to beat it. And I think that that fear is debilitating. It, you know, there was 11 months between my initial diagnosis and going back and I think the fear of not being here was greater. And so now that's why I've been so transparent with my hair loss and losing my eyelashes, eyebrows and, you know, 34, lost my breast. You know, I, I'm very transparent and open with it on social media. I spend every single day doing speaking engagements to share this because it's scary. It is still taboo. And a lot of women think it's something you start focusing on at 40. And I'm here and able to be here for my kids because I I had to face that fear. And so I just try to make it an easier, more comfortable thing to let people know it's no longer always the death sentence that it was before because of those changes in research, but I want them to see it through me so that they might not be afraid to go get those initial screenings. Because had I not gotten those screenings, the first one compared to the second one, I would not have made it to my 40th birthday. Wow. Well, that, that makes us all very emotional and um, we're so glad that you're healthy and here and, you know, able to speak your truth to so many people. And I just wanted to throw this out there to anybody who wants to answer it. Um, we need some positives uh, as far as this goes. We need to know that, okay, we're making progress here, significant progress. So um, 
you know, contribute, still to be a part and active as it goes to this effort to fight cancer. But what is some good news? Um, I can jump in, Pam. Um, the good news will be um, if we can get our family to becoming our cheerleader when we're going through something like Coach just explained that uh, people who kind of push him, people who kind of got him to be happy as it is today. Coach was saying that his wife and his daughter. But you don't see that in a, in a black community. You don't see that in a, a people minority or in Africa. Um, there's a taboo system that going on in people's mind that if someone you have cancer, you should run away from him. You should stay away from that woman. You should stay from the, away from that man. Um, there's that fear of death. Um, we need to change that. Education, you need to play a big role here because people are dying because of lack of knowledge. It's not just because they don't have money. I think education is failing us for the fact that the people don't have all the proper information for them to just be good in a society. And we need to work on it. We have a long way to go. Mank, what are some of your thoughts on that? Just something that can, you know, possibly uplift us. Well, I think one of the things that makes me hopeful for the future is that I think as Ron and, and Shantae will testify, cancer changes you forever. You are a different person. And what it makes you is a citizen of cancer. And that means that it's not just a focus on Americans with cancer, but really everyone with cancer, because you are now connected to every woman with breast cancer all over the world. And you can empathize and understand what people are going through in a really different way. And so I'm hopeful that we have more and more tools to really look at some of the disparities and, and really ask serious questions about our healthcare system here in the US, but also our healthcare system globally. Why is it that outcomes are so different from one place to another? And that one place can be in Baltimore, from one part of Baltimore to another part of Baltimore, or it can be from Washington DC to Kinshasa. We have to ask why these cancer experiences are different. And I think there's a growing understanding that the answer to some of those questions is that we have big changes to make. And I think that there's a lot of, um, I think a lot of interest and a lot of new tools we have to try to close some of these gaps between, um, between places and, and make sure that every person who gets diagnosed with cancer has their best shot to beat it. Uh, one more question um, from the audience, it's from Jenna. Dr. Armstrong, maybe you can take this. I fit within the recommended age bracket for a particular cancer screening, but my physician says I can wait a year because you're in good health. What do I have? How do I have that conversation with my doctor that I want to have the screening done anyway now? Well, Pam, I ha I, that's such an important point. And I think everybody should have a doctor who they can have that conversation with. And if they can't find that person at the first time, they need to keep finding, keep looking until they find that. We are committed to working with patients to set that time right. So my advice is really just to call that doctor and say, I've been thinking about it. I've reflected on my own values and preferences. And I believe that I will do better if I have that screening now. I recognize that it might not be perfect, but that's the decision that I wanna make. Absolutely. Well, 
we, we've got a little bit more time, but the bottom line here is that I think to impart that, you know, the importance of prevention and early detection, how it can save your life and those you love. So I want to hear from everyone on this. Uh, boy, what is the one thing you want the audience to take away today, Tim? If they learn nothing else within the course of this amazing conversation, what's the one thing you want them to take away? Well, I think uh, back to your point about what is the positive uh, forward-looking uh, information that we have. Over the last few years, cancer death rates in the United States have been dropping. We have had extremely positive trajectories in terms of cancer, uh, killing fewer people than in the past. So what that tells us is, uh, first of all, there's a long way to go because cancer is still a leading cause of death. But it means that we have effective ways of addressing cancer. We have things that work. We know that if you have a colonoscopy, if you don't smoke, if you have your HPV vaccination and your pap smear, there are many things that we can do that empower us to deal with cancer and they are having a, a major benefit on the population. So I think it's very hopeful that we are able to address a lot of the problems and it's not uh, it's not optimal yet. We don't have it for everybody. Access and equity needs to be addressed, but we have a lot to work from. And, and so I think we should be very hopeful that if we can get these messages out, like what you're hearing today, we actually can make a dent uh, in eliminating cancer and cancer disparities from our population. Shantae, can you take that question? What's the one thing? Boy, oh boy, you want people to know, take away. We've talked for a, a good hour now and we've had some great information. So what do you want people to, to leave this conversation with? A little bit of hope. Um, the other day, my daughter said, mommy, I feel a lymph node in my armpit. And it, it made it, obviously I was scared, but I was happy that she was paying attention. She's 13. And the dissemination of information that we have access to now, you can go on social media, you could go and find communities and websites like the American Cancer Society or find them on Instagram or Facebook and you have access to that information worldwide. I have people following me in Africa, India, whatever. And I think that I want everyone to know is know your normal, understand when there's change and you have to be your own advocate. But when you do those things and you're paying attention early and often, you have statistical evidence that you'll have better outcomes because of it. So that is my takeaway. Mm. Meg, what's yours? I think my takeaway is just, you know, I, I agree with, with Shantae. There is a lot of great information out there. And I think there's a lot we can do to educate ourselves and to connect with each other and create these networks. So I think it's a time for people to take control of their health, um, to do everything they can to prevent cancer and, and to work for a system that works better for people with cancer. Dikembe, and you? Personal education is very critical. And uh, I think each one of us in this world we are living in today, we know at least someone who have gone through a cancer or someone who have died from cancer. And uh, the time have come for us to find a way to becoming educated, even though we are not the person yet, but to educate ourselves like uh, Shanti say, coach say, and the doctor say. We just need to educate ourselves. It's very important. Dr. Armstrong, I understand, you know, I could have asked that question to you, and but I want to ask it in a bit of a different way. Um, not just what your takeaway is, but 
What do you see um, from this conversation that is encouraging, that may uplift people from this discussion that we've had today and all the numbers and the personal stories, you know, what do you hope came from this time that we've had together? So Pam, I think that my takeaway is that being empowered to own your own health, to get the type of doctor you deserve, for goodness sakes, if you don't trust your doctor, you need to get a doctor that you can call at any point. I think the empowerment for education to listen to Dikembe's stories about what he is doing in Africa to empower women we have the tools, like Tim said, we have vaccinations, we have screening and we have treatments, but it's been that last mile that has killed us. How do we get those treatments to the people who deserve them? So from my perspective, I am so optimistic to hear these stories of empowerment and just hope that everybody is listening, understands how much that applies to them, how they can also own their own health, figure out how to get the education, to get the healthcare and the doctor. And I will just say, you know, we are at a time in healthcare in this country where coming to the doctor is safe. So we are gone through learning how to provide a safe healthcare environment for cancer screening. And so my hope is that everybody listening will reach out to a doctor they trust to figure out how to take care of their health and to take advantage of these tools and incredible advances that are beating cancer in our country and hopefully across the globe very, very soon. For one, I'm all over that. Thanks for that advice. I feel like I've been messing around a little bit, but that's gonna be fixed the minute this ends. I'll be making a <laughs> <calls> big time. <laughs> now find out, Pam, whether you called that doctor. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, well, what we've heard here today is really a wake up call to action, we think, and in this country and abroad, we need to make prevention and care accessible to everyone. And I'd like to now turn to Nobel laureate and medical researcher, Elizabeth Blackburn, President Emerita at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Blackburn's work is contributing to breakthroughs in cancer prevention. So it's only fitting really that we give her the last word. Take a look at this. Good afternoon. In 2009, I won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for my work in the molecular structure of telomeres and the co-discovery of the enzyme telomerase. In short, I found essential pieces in the puzzle of cellular division and DNA replication, the root causes of cancer. Now, a common perception is that cancer risk reduction is passive, such as not smoking. However, advances in the understanding of cancer biology show us that while risk avoidance approaches are important, Cancer interception is key. Cancers, like heart disease, typically take years to develop. And that is why finding cancer at early stages and intercepting it before it has a chance to spiral into an advanced cancer is the best way to protect yourself. I hope you've found today's stories inspiring and motivating. I know I have. Talk to your doctor today and learn more about how you can protect yourself and those you love against cancer. Thank you.
Thank you. A very fitting into a very important discussion. I want to thank all the participants here today for this valuable information. It really is inspiring. You know, it, it makes you really want to take care of yourself and look out for your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors, whatever you can do. Uh, it, it's really, really been uh, monumental for me. And you know, we want to thank everybody um, for watching. Take care of your own health. Take care of those you love. Thank you. I'm Pam Oliver. Please be safe. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.